1: Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka.
0: I'm Mark Thiessen.
1: Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell Is Going On. Can I just say this, Mark? I wish that I did not think, What the hell is going on? every single damn hour of every single (laughs) day. Nonetheless, we have a podcast to do. What the hell is going on on our podcast?
0: It's why it's the best named podcast in America, because it's literally what everybody's wondering all the time. So we were trying to figure out what the hell are the American people thinking about foreign policy. And the Reagan Institute has a new poll out, which really delves deep into where the American people are when it comes to foreign policy and focuses primarily on The biggest foreign policy immediate challenge that's happening right now, which is the war in Ukraine, but it also talks more broadly about American foreign policy. And one of the things it shows us is that Americans are, you know, that they are still in favor of a principled foreign policy. They're still in favor of human rights, they're still in favor of democracy. And they back Ukraine. There are caveats to that, but it's an encouraging poll about the way that Americans see the world.
1: So I love what our friends, and I'm proud to call them that, our friends have done at the Ronald Reagan Foundation because they, Roger Zakheim, who heads it up, Rachel Hoff, the infamous Hoff, who used to work with us at AEI, and now Dave Trulio has just joined them, are people who truly believe in something. And we can talk about the numbers. We talk about the numbers with Roger. But one of the things that I really admire is that they ask the hard questions about values. And what I admire even more is that the American people answer, and values still matter a ton to them. Between our presidential candidates on the left, on the right, here, up, down, here, there... I I, I despair, but the truth is that even though we've elevated people who suck (laughs) to the top, (laughs) the reality is that Americans actually care about the things they've always cared about. They care about freedom, they care about democracy, and they're not selfish. They don't just care about themselves.
0: Let me just give our listeners a few numbers here from the Reagan poll. They asked if you agree or disagree with the following statements about U.S. leadership and engagement in international events. U.S. leadership and engagement in international events is essential to promoting trade and boosting our economy. 76% agree. The U.S. should stand up for human rights and democracy wherever possible in international affairs. 74% agree. A strong U.S. military is essential to maintaining peace and prosperity both at home and abroad. 85 percent agree interestingly the u.s is better served by withdrawing from international affairs and focusing more attention on problems at home 65 percent agree that that would seem to be contradictory to the rest of it but i'm not sure it is because americans are reluctant internationalists i I think they, they need to be convinced when it comes to specific things and they're really concerned about what's happening at home right now, because there's so many problems facing us from inflation to the border to crime in our cities. But when it comes to these things, you know, we're talking super majorities: 76%, 85%, just a couple more. Counter, what are, we, are These things should be a major focus of U.S. foreign policy, countering Chinese military power, 54%, countering Russian military power, 49%, pushing for nuclear disarmament, 53%, you know, protecting U.S. jobs and companies, 77%. You know, fighting terrorist networks, 70%, 58% fighting for favorable trade deals. They want us to lead in the world, not at the expense of what's happening at home, which I think they feel is happening right now. But how do we square that circle, Danny?
1: Well, but you know the answer, and you say this all the time, and you're always more optimistic about the next person who's going to come along than I am. But the answer is always leadership. That is what the Ronald Reagan Foundation is all about, because it's about the dissemination of the ideas that underpinned that leadership. But you know what? It's not just that Americans are reluctant internationalists. It's that it takes so little to persuade Americans. You know, anti-Americanism is alive and well, and you and I who... Work in foreign policy, spend a lot of time abroad as well as at home talking about these issues. And one thing that always strikes me, especially when I come to Europe, but also Asia, Australia, is the disdain, the contempt that people enjoy having for the American people. And my response is always the same, right? No one steps up when their lives aren't at stake, when their interests aren't at stake, like the American people. And that... I think one of the things that the polling reveals is not simply that that remains true, but that with a little leadership, with a little passion for the values that animated the founding of this country, those numbers would be in the 80s and 90s among Republicans and Democrats. Thank God for that.
0: Well, you know what's so fascinating is the other numbers here which are so encouraging is on Ukraine. A supermajority of 75 percent Americans think it's important to the U.S. that Ukraine wins against Russian aggression, including 86 percent of Democrats and 71 percent of Republicans and 60 percent support U.S. military aid to Ukraine. What I find fascinating about that number is that Americans instinctively understand that helping Ukraine is not only the right thing to do, it's in America's interests. And nobody's making that case to them. I mean, I am in The Washington Post. I did a whole essay on it. But, you know, people are not making that case. (laughs) But
1: the president (laughs) isn't.
0: No, that's my point. It's like, you know, when when I wrote that essay in The Washington Post that we've talked about on the podcast, I showed it to my wife. And she said, this is a speech you would have written for George W. Bush. Because George W. Bush would have been giving a speech, you know, every week talking about.
1: Don't short sell yourself. You would have written that speech for Joe Biden as well. If he he asked me to, sure. But here's
0: the broader point, and it's not just a Ukraine point, it's a foreign policy point, which is the American people are like a open door when it comes to arguments for why we should be engaged in the world. They are reluctant internationalists, but they are so willing to be persuaded. And yet the people who argue for international engagement barely lift a finger to to, to persuade them and they're still there instinctively, right? The opposite on the other side. The isolationists, particularly on the right, are talking about it all the time, focusing on it all the time. And they can't make a sale. And the American people aren't buying their arguments. And the Republican Party isn't buying their arguments. They're making some incremental progress in convincing Republicans that maybe we shouldn't be so involved in Ukraine. But they're still a minority, despite the fact that they're talking about it all the time and the people on the other side are not. And the president is not talking about it and making the case. So I okay. just find, I just find it heartening that the American people have a really good inner gyroscope. They're right there, and if only we could get a leader who would go to them and make the case—not just for helping Ukraine, but being stronger in defending Taiwan, being stronger in defending our allies around the world, leading on the world stage, Democracy. spending more money on defense. Democracy, freedom. freedom. So it's just, I, it just we're matter. a great leader away from re-energizing the Republican internationalism.
1: Good. Well, uh, you keep saying that because I'm, you know, one shitty leader away from leaping off some edge. But... (laughs) enough 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 about us let's talk about our guest for a second roger zakheim very good very old friend to both me and to mark he's the washington director of the ronald reagan presidential foundation and institute he previously practiced law at covington and burling where he led the firm's public policy and government affairs practice group before that he was general counsel and deputy staff director of the u.s house armed services committee where he led very capably the passage of their defense authorization bills that are so important. He was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense before that.
0: Here's our interview.
1: Roger,
2: welcome to the podcast. Great to be here with the Jesse Helms alums.
0: <laughs> well, we're so happy to have you. So you guys have some new polling out that is actually good news when it comes to Ukraine, where we keep hearing that support is faltering, support is weakening, especially among Republicans. What does your polling say?
2: Yeah, this is our Reagan summer survey. We're in the field towards the end of June, beginning of July. And it's what you said, it's good news. Over 75% of Americans see that it's the U.S. national interest to have Ukraine win. And that includes a boatload of Republicans too. And then when you get to funding, which I'm sure you want to talk about, obviously came up in the recent defense authorization bill, Republicans want to continue funding Ukraine. They think it's worth the cost. And that's the majority of Republicans and has held steady, Mark. That's the key piece. It hasn't declined like the prevailing narrative on the left and right would want you to believe. Actually, consistently, Republicans, the majority of Republicans want to continue supporting Ukraine with platforms, with security assistance.
0: So, what's remarkable about that to me? is that the American people think that it's in our national interest to support Ukraine, yet no one has made the case to them that it's in our national interest. They seem to know this instinctively and understand it. You know, my old boss, Don Rumsfeld, your dad's old boss, he used to say Americans have a pretty good inner gyroscope, right? You know, the inner gyroscope seems to be pretty good on this, because imagine how it would be if someone actually made the case (laughs) from a national security perspective.
2: Well, some are doing it. You know, this podcast, your piece in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal has been great on this. But, you know, to your point, we don't have a president getting out there making the case. Our Speaker of the House has a very delicate majority. So that's he's not positioned to do this. You know, Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican leader in the Senate, is very active, as you both know, making the case. But, you know, in a day, this involves the commander in chief. That's where Americans should look to to figure out what our priorities are when it comes to national security and foreign policy. And President Biden hasn't prioritized making the case to the American people.
1: So I'm amazed by the fact that we constantly come back to this because I wrote a piece in which I counted down the number of times that that presidents of the United States, Democrats and Republicans, had given speeches about major national security issues. And no surprise to any of us, that number has declined dramatically since Ronald Reagan year on year, president on president. And yet, notwithstanding the fact that that Mark managed to squeeze in a reference to Don Rumsfeld in the first three minutes of our discussion, I I am impressed. Because it's not like we're living in a vacuum, right? We are actually living in a moment where, yes, there are people who are making the case. As you said, Mark had a wonderful piece. There are others who have been terrific, the Journal, Mitch McConnell, and, and others. And yet, what we see is that supermajorities believe it's important that we win this war. You're a big part of Reagan's legacy in America. You're a big part of working on that legacy. Why do you think that is? Well, I
2: think Ukraine's done well. And we just got to start with the fact that Ukraine has been successful. They've repelled the Russian attack. We were all watching in February of 2022 when that convoy lined up and the prediction was the Russians were going to get to Kiev. It did not happen. They repelled the attack. So I think that's one thing Americans like a winner. Number two, Americans want to be on the side of good. They can see the difference between good and evil. And here, there's no question who's right and who's wrong here. Vladimir Putin's evil. What he's doing in Ukraine is evil. And Americans don't really equivocate on these matters. So I think those are the two fundamental reasons why Americans are lining up in the way we're discussing. You know, it's interesting, Danny. Reagan, even when he was in the White House and a key piece of his legacy, and in part it informs why we we do this survey here at the Reagan Institute, really felt it was important to take it to the American people, particularly on issues that perhaps at the time polling suggested the American people weren't behind him. And anything about Reykjavik and arms control and things like that, he took it to the American people. When you make the case, they come around You know, it's pretty significant that we're seeing these numbers because the prevailing narrative in the media, whether it's MSNBC, Fox, you know, certainly what you see in social media, you know, you both are fighting it every day. I follow your feeds. You get people trying to leave the impression that somehow the American people, and particularly conservatives and Republicans, are not behind Ukraine. They don't want to do this. And that's anything but the case. And the recent House votes, which we should talk about on this matter, and the votes in the Defense Authorization Act, those amendments actually outperform what we saw in the Reagan survey. In other words, the House of Representatives, Republicans, outperformed the numbers that we saw, what I thought was a very good Reagan defense survey. So and what I found was interesting was the reasons why people say
0: we should oppose aid to Ukraine and the reasons why they say we should support it. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, it was interesting. Oftentimes you hear that, well, we should oppose it, because, you know, we can't account for the, the funding, right? And so if, if we were to only audit the funding we give to Ukraine, you know, perhaps that would move people. And, and, and that, you know, is, is a kind of a thread you see in the congressional debate and often you see articulated by Ukraine skeptics. No doubt Ukraine has had its struggles with corruption. So it makes sense people would be looking there. It actually doesn't move the needle at all in terms of making people who support you know less supportive in the opposite direction but here's the kicker mark and we've talked about this before which i think is amazing and it goes to the point about making the case for republicans who think it's not worth the cost right there are about 41 percent of republicans who said it's not worth the cost if you give them three pieces of information okay and it's amazing here's the three ukraine holds 83 percent of their territory We've degraded the Russian military. And oh, by the way, the total amount of platforms and goods we've given Ukraine amounts to roughly 3% of one year's defense budget. You give them those three pieces of information, and there's an 18-point swing for those who don't think it's worth the cost. Now they move over to the side that think it is worth the cost. And that, to me, is, is incredible. It means 41% go up to way over 50%.
0: Amazing how actually making the case Moves yeah. numbers.
1: <laughs> that's the funny thing about people's faith in democracy is that even as they dislike our leaders, even though they dislike our choices, even though they have more and more doubts about the institutions of our oh. government, the reality is that when their <laughs> leaders, whoever they are, Democrats or Republicans, when their leaders make the case to them, they're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think that's, it, look, that, I think that's one of the most heartening things.
0: Ever. Before you leave that, the one other thing that I thought was yeah. interesting, when, when you go into the reasons to support, you know, you, like you were saying corruption doesn't move the needle in opposition, you know, depleting U.S. weapons stockpile was only 11 percent, don't pro- risk provoking Russia, that was 15 percent, that really doesn't move the needle on opposition. Interestingly... A lot of the practical arguments didn't move the needle when it comes to why to support, like, you know, degrading Russian military power wasn't that big a number. You know, sending a message to other countries like China, not a big deal. What were the two biggest reasons? Standing up to Russian aggression and helping protect the freedom and people and sovereignty in countries wherever we can. That together was 67% of the reason to support it. I mean, Americans, they're practical. But they're idealistic, too. They know we need to stand up to Russian aggression. They know we need to stand up for freedom. Our country, it's not transactional for Americans. Talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, there's no doubt that this polling reveals, and we've seen it elsewhere in work we've done on this, that the American people believe freedom is a good thing. And they recognize it's in our national interest. Not only is it you know, it's idealism in some respects, but I think it's also pragmatic, that they understand that we're better off as a country, our freedom, our prosperity, our security, if there are free countries and if we're opposing those and certainly supporting those who are, are fighting for their freedom. And I think that, that bears out here. And, and truly, you know, elsewhere in the poll, we talk about whether or not international engagement is something Americans support. And if you put it to the American people in the terms of, hey... This is good for our national defense. It's good for our security, economic prosperity. They'll back international engagement every time, you know, approaching you know over eighty percent. So I think it, it lines up, Mark, both in terms of the narrow discussion of Ukraine, more broadly about how Americans look at the world.
1: So where I was going with my question. Before you so rudely interrupted. Before I was so rudely interrupted, that's also true. Is, you know, you've been in this business, and you're in the business of furthering. Reagan's legacy, I have to be honest with you, and I think I've said this in a, in a bunch of interviews, I've sat with Biden and White House officials and said exactly what we've just said, you know, we're with you, we need to do more, where's the president, where's the address from the Oval? Now, where's the address to the, any of the national war colleges? Where's the address to the military? Where, Where is the president using his most unique bully pulpit to make this case? Do you have an understanding or a theory as to why it is that our presidents don't want to make the case for a stand-up American foreign policy?
2: Danny, I, I have two thoughts on it, not in any way validated by data or kind of some unique insight from someone who you know, sits in the situation room or outside the Oklahoma. Don't open worry.
1: You're, you're sitting here with Mark. Data is, <laughs> is, is, has nothing to do with what we yeah. talk about. Yeah.
2: <laughs> take it for what it's worth, right? It's just, but to me, it's one of two things, right? It's a political liability in their mind. that takes them off their message. This is the party that you know, denigrated the war in Afghanistan and in Iraq, you know, as endless wars, and they don't they don't want to be in any way outmaneuvered from holding that position, or possibly it's an end. Listen, this is not something that President Biden's good at. I don't see him making many speeches. And, you know, whether it's a foreign policy issue of, of consequence or a domestic policy issue of consequence, this is not the president who's getting out there and bringing it to the American people. If there was a time where Joe Biden was a great communicator and can engage with, with, with voters and, and make the case on TV, you know, it seems to have passed him by, and, and that's not where they're investing their time, and, and, and it's risky. But you know, I'd add one other thing here, because to contradict myself on, on that second theory of the case, it's not like the Secretary of Defense is doing this either. You, know, you would think that if this is something that the president doesn't want to do, there's a political risk here, but they're still invested in this, that you would have the Secretary of Defense in the context of the first and most consequential war on the continent of Europe since, since, since World War II, he'd be out there making the case. That's not what they're doing either. So either they don't feel they have the right messenger or you know they think this message is one that they want to bring to their voters, to their base.
1: That's really important. I actually hadn't thought about the fact that our Secretary of Defense has been almost entirely silent.
2: He's doing good work, you know, as as both of you are aware, going out there and working with the NATO allies and engaging, you know, trying to get the aid synchronized and and getting support. So there's kind of stuff that he could point to that he's doing. But on the public affairs side, you know, that hasn't been his role, broadly speaking, as Secretary of Defense and, and certainly not one that he's leaned into on Ukraine. So let's talk a little bit about this. We just had this NATO summit, and
0: we did a podcast with Kurt Volker about sort of the failure on NATO. But there was a poll from the New Europe Center, which found that 59% of Americans want to bring Ukraine into NATO, 8% are opposed, and 33% are not sure. That 59% is pretty significant. And what's interesting, they were asked... Do you want to invite NATO to become a member as soon as possible, even if the war with Russia is ongoing? Thirty-one percent invite mm. them to become a NATO member, but actual accession happen after the war. Fifteen percent wait for an invitation until after the war with Russia is over. Thirteen. I mean, those are pretty stunning numbers when it comes to support for bringing Ukraine into NATO. Why do you think Biden is so reluctant on this?
2: I'm surprised by the numbers and Americans, but I generally think that if they are supportive of Ukraine and they want to see Ukraine win, which we've discussed about, you know, three quarters of American people do, then they're really not going to parse, hey, what's the difference between us supporting Ukraine, giving them platforms and them, you know, becoming a member of NATO? Now, the three of us know there's a big bit difference, and that's called Article 5, right? And and, and that needs to be taken seriously, and, and therefore there probably needs to be more measured policy response. In terms of President Biden, it's, you know, I, I listened to, you, to the last podcast with Volcker and, you know, Ukraine deserved more than they got. And even, you know, there's a way to say no, not right now, that is still encouraging and supportive and, and kind of gives a shot in the arm to Zelensky and then the way they were treated. I am fascinated by Henry Kissinger, not someone I turn to generally for uh, <laughs> what we should or should not be doing on foreign policy. I know with a bunch of Jesse Helms veterans, I'm, I'm, I'm in good company. But even Kissinger said they should be part of NATO on account that they are an effective and fully armed fighting force. So, you know, you think about... What Ukraine brings to the table, there are a lot of NATO allies that bring far less.
1: I don't think there's any question. I mean, I think one of the most persuasive cases that Kurt made is, you know, here we are, you know, NATO standing against our most potent enemy on the European continent, Russia, and we haven't got a single foot on the ground. It's only the Ukrainians who don't. And those guys who are fighting so effectively, we, we don't want them in, you know, because, and, and when I say we, I don't think that that actually represents what Americans think about this. I think that represents what the Biden administration thinks about this. I thought, by the way, in that exact same, I'm making a, you know, a, a, an awkward transition here, but I thought you made a really important point. You had a piece, not about Ukraine at all, but a piece about Cuba, <laughs> China and Cuba, but it was the same thing. It was this this sense of how to stand up to our enemy, who should stand up to our enemies, and the language that they understand. And I thought you made a really, really effective case that applies not simply in the case of Cuba, but also in the case of Ukraine and in so many others. Lay that out for everybody.
2: Yeah, thanks, Danny. This, this was one that, doing a little bit of research as i want to do here at the Reagan Institute on national security foreign policy events during the Reagan administration. And it came upon this chapter, which I I was not familiar with, (laughs) but it it has shocking parallels to today, when you had this moment in 1979 where the Senate Intelligence Committee found out that the Soviets had deployed an armored brigade. So basically, you know, this military might on the island of cuba less than 100 miles from florida and it was clear that the carter national security team was flat-footed they weren't aware of it to the extent they were aware of it they were they were kind of suppressing it they didn't know how to respond but what was interesting and it lines up with what we were talking about just a moment ago carter took this really seriously he was really concerned as a political election year He knew that Ronald Reagan and conservatives would exploit it, let alone hawkish Democrats in the U.S. Senate, were concerned about it. And Carter gave an Oval Office address to the nation explaining why, you know, this wasn't the Cuban Missile Crisis all over again, that we could deal with this problem, and oh, by the way, let's continue to negotiate arms control and have a strategic arms limitation treaty with the Soviets not really persuasive in making that case. And people like Senator Jesse Helms talking about him a lot more today than anticipated, you know, came out against it. And it ultimately was one of the reasons why the SALT II treaty failed. You take that episode and you contrast it with today, you know, and compare it. One, China's following the same playbook to your point, Danny, right? They are now have a military training facility in Cuba along with a listening station, by the way, the same facilities the Soviets use they've just moved into. But second, look at the contrast in in Carter's response versus Joe Biden's response, right? There, there is no Oval Office address a Nation explaining what's happening. It's the opposite from his press team, nothing to see or nothing to discuss. There is alignment between Carter and Biden, which is also interesting, which is, hey, don't worry about the security threat posed at the time, the Soviet Union, today, China. We can cooperate our, our way through it. Let's sign a strategic arms limitation treaty with, with the Soviet Union, or today, let's send John Kerry out to Beijing to negotiate some sort of climate deal. So, you know, that respect, that detente is alive and well, and both Carter and Biden clearly are seeking forms of cooperation more than they're interested in competing against an adversary.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the state of the Reagan foreign policy vision in the Republican Party, because, you know, as you pointed out in the House, the members overperformed when it comes to the polling. The majority of Republicans support aid to Ukraine, but about two thirds of Republican members voted to shoot down amendments from isolationist Republicans on Ukraine aid. But then you've got the presidential candidates. And you've got mm-hmm. Donald Trump, who he's got a weird position on Ukraine where he's sort of saying, oh, I like Zelensky. He backed me on the perfect phone call. He's a good guy. He could have <laughs> thrown me under the bus, but uh, I like him. And I'll tell Putin, he said the other day, I'll tell Putin to stop this or else I'm going to double the aid that I give to Zelensky. That was sort of encouraging, but, you know, he wa- he's going to end it in 24 hours because he's a master negotiator. And all of a sudden, Ron DeSantis' super PAC attacks Trump for being too pro Ukraine and for wanting to give more aid to Ukraine. And these are the two leading candidates for the Republican presidential nomination. All the guys like like Mike Pence who went to Kyiv and met with Zelensky and are, you know, backing him are in the single digits. I mean, is that just because foreign policy isn't the big issue here or is there something going on here with a robust Reaganite foreign policy losing its grip in the Republican presidential field?
2: Mark, I'm a little disappointed with the question. I really thought it was going to end with "What the hell is going on?" I I, maybe. maybe (laughs)
1: Literally, I cannot (laughs) believe you said that. I was about to say. I think what you're trying to say, Mark, is "What the hell is going on?"
2: (laughs) (laughs) Roger, what the hell is going on? (laughs) Listen, this is people making bets on an issue they think matters in a primary. Clearly, right? From Vivek to DeSantis. And, and Trump, you know, kind of taking his own unique approach, right, can't, can't alienate anybody in that MAGA lane. And they're all pretty confident the MAGA lane will not punish you for opposing Ukraine and possibly reward you. And I've seen this as well, Mark. We, we talked about this offline. We had visitors from, you know, local Republican club from out west came to the Reagan Institute, and, and they wanted to talk Ukraine. That was the first issue they wanted to discuss. So I think party activists are very dialed in on this. And, and you know, for reasons you guys both know and discuss all the time, right? Why are we protecting the sovereignty of Ukraine when we can't, you know, protect our sovereign borders here at home? You know, that, that's the sort of thing that really gets the party faithful riled up. But that's where I really look at the House vote as quite interesting, because all those members who voted against the Gates and Marjorie Green Taylor Amendment and voted to support their for Ukraine, you know, they also have to think about primaries. They also have to worry about those elements that are gonna support a Vivek in the primary or, or or DeSantis. They have to worry about them being you know losing their seat over it. And I think they're growing in confidence. And I had a chance just prior to the vote to have my own little survey of talking to about know, half a dozen members in a Republican conference, and there were a number of them that said, Listen, it's the right thing to do. I'll have to explain this vote away for those who I can't convince, but I'll get through it. And so you know, it's it's one of these things that for the party activists in the primary, early stage of the primary, you know, maybe it advantages you. But as you move out to the general, Mark, my sense is you're going to modify that viewpoint and, and give you space to support Ukraine.
1: Roger, you are, like Mark, a happy warrior. And I appreciate that a lot. The world needs happy warriors. As everybody on the, who's ever listened to this podcast knows, I'm not a happy warrior. And <laughs> the Reagan term in... Our recent history, you know, I don't want to go back too far, was transformative, right? We changed the world. America changed the world. America ended a 70-year war. America defeated communism. America, America did all those things while standing up for freedom and democracy, revitalizing our economy, and... What I don't understand, and I I mean this, and and you obviously, you know, you speak with that hat on your head to these members. What happened? Is it ignorance? Is it just the increasing bitter partisanship? Is it Trump? If I may coin our phrase again, what the hell has happened?
2: I think... Couple things. One, you know, our our friend Matt has done a nice job of of profiling the history of the conservative movement and showing in some respects that Reagan was a bit of an aberration. So, you know, I certainly see it the way you do, Danny, and, and there was a lot that happened during the Reagan administration in years that followed. Was all for the good. But this uh, this viewpoint, this neo isolationist mindset, this this idea of being skeptical about what America can do in the world, can accomplish in the world. Has a long, rich history in the conservative movement and Republican Party. So that's item one. Item two, you know, in this respect, Iraq and Afghanistan is our generation's Vietnam. It's just—it's very clear. You know, the endless war, right? Getting mired elsewhere. You know, the the fact that we can't win, right? And therefore, we—and we're spending this money that needs to be spent at home. I mean, you don't have to be deep in the history during and post-Vietnam to see the the same sorts of things you know, kind of was a prevailing mindset in both the Republican and Democratic Party after the war in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, so it takes leadership. It takes leadership to bring people out of it to, to see that there's a different pathway, a pathway that ultimately is is beneficial to our security and our economic prosperity. But those people are not polling beyond 10 percent right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but isn't the pathway out the Reagan pathway? I mean, so Reagan came in after Vietnam in the very same moment in history and I mean, it's been pointed out that he engaged our military less than almost any president in before or since and And yet he forged the Reagan doctrine, which was that we'll help these people fight their own wars of liberation. All they need is our weapons, our training, our aid, our diplomatic support, and we could push back on communism without sending troops everywhere to fight these wars and that's basically what we're doing you know, in Ukraine right now. So we're following the Reagan doctrine. We don't have a leader like Reagan who's doing it boldly. Joe Biden is no Ronald Reagan. But isn't the solution the same to maintain that world leadership?
2: Yes. I mean, of course, you know, that, that if, I would, if I would have said an enthusiastic yes to that question, I am working in the wrong place. <laughs> but, but it's clear, Mark, that we don't have leaders who can confidently- Stand for that and articulate that, or the ones that w- they are leading, they're the ones that are they are not leading in in the in the early primary contest here, and 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 that's because I think we haven't anybody to stare down the the shadow of Iraq and Afghanistan, and and you know, just if we go to the history a little bit here, because you raised it, Reagan did that, and it hurt him a little bit, but he did it consistently, and he said, listen, there. You know, the country let down, you know, Washington let down our troops in Vietnam, but the troops were honorable. Right. And and we just haven't had anybody make that case on a national stage. It's been too toxic too soon. And as a result, I think it's exploited. It's just too easy. It's low hanging fruit, whether you're Donald Trump or you're Barack Obama or Joe Biden. who, Who can do that? Let's pretend that we're beyond the 2024 election.
0: We're looking at yeah. 2028. We're looking at 2032.
1: Let's not pretend are- that, Mark. That, that'll that be awesome. And let's do all our podcasts from now on pretending that 2024 <laughs> isn't going to happen. Yes, I, I, no. I
0: endorse that 100%. But who do you like who are young leaders. You know, we got these great leaders in Congress who are, courageous. you say, courageous vote. They're going to have to explain to the consistency, but the right thing to do. Who are the guys in, in Congress and other places who you are impressed with, who you could see yeah. carrying that mantle and the, the Reagan mantle I mean, into the future?
2: It's people, I imagine, that you and I and, and Danny, we engage with and admire and, and encourage all the time, you know, from Mike Gallagher in the House of representatives to, you know, Tom Cotton in the, in the Senate. But I actually think that to answer that question, I think something productive is coming out and it's going to shock you both. All right. Put on your seatbelts, Tucker Carlson's engagement with all the candidates minus Chris Christie. And here's why those guys did not kind of shrink, right? Mike Pence, whether you thought he did well or didn't do well, gave it back to Tucker and and made the case. Tim Scott, you know what I've seen of the footage came back and, and, and made the case. So, we'll see if it if it pays off for them or or if it you know keeps them under 10 percent support but i for me it was actually it was good to see some of these people seeking the nomination push back and counter tucker carlson on this very
1: issue so you beat me to my exit question you mentioned matt continetti's outstanding book and we had matt on to talk about it it really has influenced a lot of what I've thought and what I've written since. And for me, that's the the big question about conservatives in America. Are you hopeful that conservative internationalism in defense of freedom and free markets and free people is actually going to be the future of the Republican Party or not?
2: I am, because as great as Mac's book is, and it gives you you know this rich history going back to Coolidge, and of course, what would you expect from an American Enterprise Institute scholar other than a great product? You know, the Republican Party, you know, my takeaway from that book, this kind of neo-isolationist, or isolationist mindset was strongest prior to World War II. It continued a little bit afterwards, but it was in decline, and that's because we... Became the global superpower militarily and economically, and so we have so much at stake and so much to lose in a way that we didn't prior to the Second World War. That hasn't changed. In fact, it's only increased. Right. So you know, it's not the Soviet Union today, but as you both you know talk about often, it's China, and and we can't afford to back down and put up walls and just simply you know fold our arms and just say okay. You know what will what will be what will be. I mean, one of the interesting kind of nuances that we focus on inside the Beltway is that element that don't like Ukraine but they like Taiwan. You know that, that that's kind of the conservative element that somehow you know they 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 they're catering to the to the Tucker Carlson mindset. But at the same time, they want to be you know strong countering Xi's China. You know at the end of the day,
0: until the there's nice a war in Taiwan, and then they'll be nowhere <laughs> to be found. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. That's exactly where
2: I was headed, Mark, <laughs> right? So in so the end of the day, you know, that, that dog won't hunt. They're, they're ultimately, you know, going to return to their roots. But, but it's one that I think the American people, I, one of my kind of fascinating threads that comes out when we, we talk to elected officials is how internationalist America's farmers are. <laughs> and it plays on Ukraine as well, right? I mean, you go to Iowa and you talk to them about, you know, their farms and their interests. I mean, they are deeply concerned, about international trade. You know, maybe an obvious thing to say inside the beltway, but not necessarily something most Americans think about when they talk about the heartland and kind of rural parts of their country. They care about that trade, and as a result, they care about the peace and prosperity because that ultimately, you know, is what keeps the farm humming. So
0: my exit question is is a bit of a loaded question because of your employer. But how do we keep the Reagan legacy alive? We hear from some corners, got to stop talking about Ronald Reagan. Nobody remembers Ronald Reagan. People, you know, this new generation, they they weren't alive during the Cold War. These touchstones don't work. Politicians should stop talking about Ronald Reagan. And I never hear the Democrats stop talking about FDR. And he's been dead a lot longer than Ronald Reagan was. You know, Joe Biden's going to be the next FDR. And everybody knows what that means. Do you agree with me? I'm sure you do that we need to talk about Reagan more (laughs) and that we need to hold up Reagan's example more and we need to fight for the Reagan vision of the Republican party more. And I'm assuming you agree with that. How do we
2: do it? Yeah, hundred percent agree. That won't come to shock to anybody here coming to you live from the Reagan Institute in DC, but the, how is the fascinating, you know, question and one that, you know, spend probably, you know, a lot of time thinking about two things and it gets to two elements of, of the legacy. One Fundamentally, when you talk about keeping a legacy alive, you're talking about ideas, you're talking about principles and values. And so whether you wanna you know, attach those ideas, principles and values to, to Reagan, peace through strength, the Reagan doctrine, or you know, go all the way back to our founding in Hamilton, right? We just need to take those core ideas, values and principles and, and the artistry and the work that the American Enterprise Institute does, we're trying to do here, I wish more conservative institutions in D.C. and across the country were doing is to tailor them and apply them for today's challenges. And the Ukraine one is one that's you know easily done, more easily done. And there's a second one on the political planes. I was just hitting on policy, whether it's free market econ- economics or you know, peace through strength and national defense, American strength. But there's also the way we go about advancing our party and our interests. And, and here I'm always amazed and pleased by the reception I get people tell me we need more Reagan. We need more of Reagan. And that is the elevated nature in which Reagan engaged in his politics. You know, the enemy for Ronald Reagan, as you both know, was unnamed bureaucrats, right? His politics in the end of the day was about, you know, big tent, It wasn't about left or right, it was about up or down and trying to bring Republicans along and and Democrats. Many of the people who came in and worked in the Reagan administration, you both know, were people who were Democrats that were persuaded by the ideas, principles, and values. It was additive politics, but it was also elevated politics. And that element of Reagan's legacy, we are in desperate need of, not just in the Republican Party, but I think across the political spectrum, and we don't have leaders who know how to do that, and we ought, to, we ought to be looking for those who can I think Tim Scott probably, of everybody we're seeing right now, is one who's most naturally, authentically does just that.
1: Amen. Amen to that, and amen to to more of it. I, I really agree with you, and I think it's the, the point that we need to hit on repeatedly and harder and, uh, and I'm happy to hear you like Tim Scott as well. He's a great guy. <laughs>
0: we, we like you, Roger. Yeah, Thank you so much for, for coming hey guys, on, on the podcast.
1: I'm
2: honored to be with you guys. This is super cool.
0: We started in the intro talking about how the isolationists are talking about this all the time, pushing, pushing, pushing and making so little progress. So here's a Gallup poll which asked Americans, which would you prefer the U.S. do in the Russia-Ukraine conflict? End the war as quickly as possible, even if it means allowing Russia to keep territory as captured from Ukraine or support Ukraine in reclaiming territory that Russia's captured, even if it results in a more prolonged conflict between the two nations. So in August of last year, 66 percent of Americans said support Ukraine and 31 percent said end the conflict as quickly as possible. In January, that number had slipped to 65 percent in support of Ukraine and 31% still ending the conflict as quickly as possible. Now in June, it's 62% support Ukraine, 36%. I mean, that's statistically insignificant changes. The American people are just solid on this, despite the fact that this is going on, despite the fact that it appears to be in some ways a stalemate, despite the fact that there are isolationist voices arguing all the time why it doesn't matter, and they are just solid.
1: You know, and look, I always feel for our listeners because... There are things that we talk about a lot that are, you know, not necessarily about what you think about first thing in the morning. It's not about necessarily about inflation, it's not about how damn hot it is outside, it's not about gross smoke from Canada, and it's not about the price of milk and eggs. At the end of the day, though, the issues that we talk about go to the heart of who the American people are. And that's one of the reasons why I like your citation of these numbers, why I like talking to you, Roger Zakheim, why I think it's really important that we talk to people like Kurt Volker and Yara Trofimov. Because at the end of the day, and this is the argument you and I always have with AEI's economists, at the end of the day, if something bad happens, if a foreign country gets invaded, if we are threatened, if NATO is threatened, Nobody remembers what the price of milk was on that day. Everybody remembers what we did to stand for freedom, how we stood together and how we stood with the good people in this world to do the right thing. And that's why well, they they'll remember, that. they'll remember
0: the price of milk, because if, we, if you think inflation is bad now, imagine what the inflation will be like if we have to go to war over Taiwan. If there's a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, inflation is going to be a lot worse. And oh, by the way, you won't be able to find a semiconductor for you. We'll have no cars. We'll have no computers. We'll have no cell phones. I mean, there, th- all these things have downstream implications for all the things that people are thinking about every day.
1: As our listeners know, Mark. I have made a deep and beautiful spiritual argument about the soul and character of the American people, and you have talked about the fact that it will really suck because you will not be able to get your new iPhone. Both are true, but we, I think, now know who is more deep in the conversation. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, we, you are definitely deep. What depths you fall into is a different story.
1: <laughs> I was waiting. I was watching the steam come out of your ears, trying to think of a comeback to that. Hey, folks, we hope you're having a great summer. If you have ideas, thoughts, reactions, don't hesitate to share them with us. And thanks for listening.
0: Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org.
1: Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Teason. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this.
0: Thanks for listening.